Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. While the kids are returning to their seat, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24 is what we're going to uh, use as kind of our central text this morning as we look at the Mosaic Covenant, as we continue this journey through covenant theology, trying to understand how covenant frames so much of the biblical story. So let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word, Exodus chapter 24. We'll read the whole chapter together this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld, his, uh, they beheld God and ate and drank. Then uh, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Most gracious Father, we ask, that as we consider your word this morning and this, in many ways, fearsome covenant, that you would guide us by your spirit, that we may see that the law was given to drive us to Christ, that even it reminds us and drives us to your grace and your mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be with us by your spirit and illumine our hearts and minds. Strengthen me, I ask, that I might preach in his power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to follow a similar pattern as we look at the Mosaic Covenant 
to what we followed as we look at the Abrahamic covenant. And the reason for this uh, is twofold. One, there is a similar pattern in Scripture in how these covenants unfold. They, they aren't given just in one text, but kind of unfold progressively through a series of texts where God announces His Word, His covenant. The other reason that we're going to follow a similar pattern is because I want us to see as clearly as we can what is the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant because this is one of the big questions in Christianity. It's one of the big questions in biblical theology. How do the Abrahamic covenant and Mosaic covenant work together? And this is such a big question because it drives at the heart of how do we understand law and gospel? which really is just a question that drives at the heart of how do we understand our standing before God? Do we gain standing before God by keeping all the rules and being praised as a good child, or do we gain standing before God by His grace, by His mercy that comes to us through Jesus Christ? Now, hopefully, if you've been here for any time at all, you know the answer to that question is through Jesus Christ and not through our performance not through our law-keeping. But we struggle with this, don't we? We we struggle with with how how do these pieces fit together? We we want it to be, we want to know, kind of we want to go back to to high school chemistry class and balance the equation. How much law, how much gospel makes this all fit together just right? But the problem is, when we start down that path, we're, we, we've started down the wrong path altogether. Like, like me taking chemistry. It was the wrong path altogether. When we try to balance this law-gospel equation, wrong path. It's all grace. It's all gospel. And so this drives us to this question that Paul was driven to in Romans, that Paul was driven to in Galatians, that, that, that his readers were driven to. Why then the law? Why was this given at all? If it's all of grace, grace upon grace, that grace may abound. If it's all about the steadfast love of God, His covenant faithfulness, His mercy to His people, the finished work of Jesus Christ, if it's all about that, why in the world was the law even given? Well, that's what we're going to begin to see as we look at the Mosaic Covenant and its form, and its fulfillment, and its function, and all of those different things. So first, though, we need to remember, as we begin to wrestle with why was the law given, and and, and why was this all put together the way it was, we need to to wrestle first with kind of the context in which the law was given. So if you're following along in in your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. And we read these words beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, if you flip over just a a couple chapters to Genesis, I'm sorry, to Exodus chapter 6, and we look at verses 1 through 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And then he goes on and talks about how he's going to deliver them. So if you think about it, the context of the Mosaic covenant that we've got to keep in mind is what we talked about last week, the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, if you remember the unique part in the, in the ratification ceremony of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, there was this promise, you will be a sojourner in a land not your own for 400 years, and then I will bring you out with great possessions. That's what's happening in the book of Exodus. So, so, so the first thing we have to do, the first thing that we have to understand when we read the book of Exodus is that it is, in part, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It is God, after some 400 years, saying, okay, now is the time. You've been sojourners, like I said you would. Now is the time for me to act. I remember my covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and I am going to bring you out of Egypt with great possessions. And it's in the process of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and then being brought out of slavery in Egypt. It's in the process of that that the Mosaic covenant is made. This is why Paul can so confidently say the Mosaic covenant was not an annulment of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that was previously ratified. In fact, it was in the process of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that the Mosaic Covenant was even made. We've got to keep that in mind because all of a sudden that frames how we read the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't the covenant that defined Israel as a people of God. That was the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant that was all of grace. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't the covenant by which God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the Abrahamic Covenant, a covenant all of grace. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't the covenant by which they got the land. That was the Abrahamic Covenant, wherein God said, I will give you this land. So we're back to the same question then. Why was the Mosaic Covenant given? Well, at, at its most basic, we begin to see why it was given as we trace out, just like we did with the, with the Abrahamic Covenant, these different stages of the Mosaic Covenant being revealed as we progress through the book of Exodus. So if you flip over to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, we see the covenant promised. Just like we saw in Genesis 12 with the Abrahamic Covenant, it was promised there. So we see before the covenant is ratified, we see the covenant being promised. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And the people answer in verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a common, even if it's somewhat comical in hindsight, 
refrain from the people of God in response to God promising and then ratifying and confirming this covenant between him through Moses, between him and them through Moses. So here in chapter 19, we see the covenant promised. I'm going to make this covenant with you, and if you obey, it's going to go well with you. And you're going to be a kingdom of priests and, and a royal priest and all this stuff, right? That's what's going to happen. Well, the Ten Commandments are given in, in chapter 20 and some other rules in chapter 21 through 23, and then flip over to 24, the passage that we read together earlier. Here, we see the covenant in your Bible. It's probably titled the covenant confirmed or something like that. Uh, here, to use the same categories we used last week as we of Abraham, it's the covenant ratified. This is where we see the sacrifices made and the people, the, the, the blood of the covenant sprinkled on the people and sprinkled on the altar and, and all of those different things. The covenant is ratified. And, and what do the people say twice? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then again in verse 8, uh, uh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So, so we begin to see something about the Mosaic Covenant. The, the Mosaic Covenant had this works aspect to it. Not in the sense, I want to be very careful here, not in the sense, not in the sense that they became the people of God by obeying. No, it wasn't legalism. The, the Mosaic Covenant was not a way to be justified. It wasn't a way to save yourself. But it was a call to very strict obedience. It was a law that, that breaking it had consequences. It was a real law in that way. And in that way, we, we see that there is, even though we're going to see that this covenant functions within this broader category of, of, of covenant of grace, we're going to see that there is still this works principle, and that's part of how it functions as a covenant of grace because the law had a very particular job to do in the people of God. Now, if we flip over a few more chapters, just like uh, to, to chapter 31, just like with the Abrahamic covenant in chapter Genesis 12, the covenant promised, Genesis 15, the covenant ratified, Genesis 17, the covenant signified. So we see here in Exodus, Exodus 19, the covenant is promised, Exodus 24, the covenant is ratified, Exodus 31, the covenant is signified. What is the sign of this Mosaic covenant? Well, Moses tells us, you are to speak, this is beginning in chapter 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 31. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And he goes on and tells them to keep the Sabbaths. Keep the Sabbaths holy, because that's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So we see the same pattern. Again, going back to whether we should see one or many Abrahamic covenants, we would have to ask the same question about Moses, but very few people do. We, we, what we see isn't different covenants being made here, but one covenant being progressively revealed in different stages. It's promised, it's ratified, it's signified. But because this is a, a, a covenant that, that though it functions under this umbrella of the covenant of grace, and we're going we're gonna to get to that, but because there is this works principle involved, it's interesting what we see next. Some of you may know what Exodus chapter 32 holds, and we could, we could make a new category here called the covenant denied. 
Because what happens in Exodus 32? They make a golden calf because they're concerned about this Moses dude who's been up on the mountain for too long. And so they call Aaron and Aaron gets all the gold, all of the great possessions that they were brought out of Egypt with, all of this bounty of God's grace. And what do they do with it? They make a freaking altar and say, this is your God, this golden calf, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. I mean, do, 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 we, do we get just the, the like, the what in the world are y'all thinking kind of moment that this is? They've just been told all kinds of things like, have no other gods before me, make no graven images, all that kind of stuff, right? And they say in response, oh, we're going to do everything you said. We're going to do it. They say, they've said that three times so far. Yes, God, everything you said, Good deal. We're on it. We will be obedient. And so they ratify the covenant. Moses goes up on the mountain to get it all written out, to get the official document. And before he gets back, they're worshiping an idol that they made out of gold, that they got by God's grace. The covenant is denied as soon as it signifies promised in 19, it's ratified in 24, it's signified in 30, it's denied, or in 31, it's denied in 32. It's astounding how little time it took them to get to this point. We've talked about Moses' response before, but then we get to chapter 34, and we see that the covenant is renewed. Now, the only thing that explains this is the grace of God. The only thing that explains a God of all creation, the God of all creation, saying to you, don't worship any other gods and don't make any idols to bow down to them and serve them. The only thing that explains his response to you when the very first thing you do after taking your scout oath, I promise we ain't going to do it, that you do that thing, only thing that explains Exodus chapter 34 is the grace of God. That's it. Why did God come back and in Exodus chapter 34 bring Moses back up, make two more tablets of stone, and renew the covenant? Because he's a gracious God. And this is what we need to see with the law. It has grace built into it at every turn. The rest of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we could, we could kind of classify as the covenant specified where all the different specifics of what it looks like to live in, in obedience to the Mosaic covenant, to do our part. All of that could be classified as the covenant specified where we get all the rules. And here's what's fascinating about the law. The law itself understands that we will break it. That's why it gives in Leviticus all of these sacrifices for when you sin. The law gets it. We don't, but the law does. The law understands that it can't make you righteous. The law understands that it demands righteousness of you, but it doesn't have the power as this naked law to, to produce in you what it demands of you. And so part of the law is 
when you break it and when you mess it all up and when you have failed, go kill these animals. And it's all going to be all right. But what we learn as the story unfolds is that those animals were just pointing forward to something better. It wasn't the animals really, at the end of the day, that really mattered. It was them trusting God. And so this drives us then quickly to the consequence of the Mosaic Covenant. We've got this this idea of of how it's been laid out, how it was promised, how it was ratified, how it was signified, how it was denied, how it was renewed, how it was specified, and that's the Mosaic Covenant. There's, There's rules that you have to keep. If they don't keep them, they're out of the land. And Moses is the one who's acting as the mediator going between God and the people. And then the priesthood is put into effect to be the mediator between God and the people. So how, what's the consequence of all this? Well, in part, it puts Israel in this, in this kind of works scenario. Not to earn their salvation, but to stay in the land. If they disobey, if they serve other gods... They're out. They're going to get the boot. And we know from Israel's history, that's exactly what happens. What's fascinating is we don't even have to read their history to know that that was what was going to happen. You get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and it starts like this. I'm going to flip to it so I get it exactly right. Deuteronomy 30 starts like this. And when, not if, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Wait a minute. What's going on there? When all these blessings and curses, so they've disobeyed, when they come to mind in the land that the Lord your God has driven you, that was one of the curses for their disobedience to the law, that God would kick them out that they would be driven out of the land and spread among the nations. The law itself says when that happens, not if. In other words, the law gets it. God gets it. They weren't going to stay in the land. They were going to get kicked out. They were going to need grace. They were going to need mercy. They were going to need God to act on his promise to Abraham to give them the land because they would not be able to secure it for themselves. When they're told to drive all the people out, one of the very first things they do is stupidly, without praying, make a covenant with the Gibeonites and promise we won't attack you. You get to stay in the land. They never finish driving everybody out of the land. Never. It never happens. It's it's never this kind of purified holy land at any point. And the sad part is it's often because they're the ones building the idols. They're the ones building the Asherah poles. They're the ones sacrificing to Moloch. They're the ones offering their, 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 their sacrifices to Baal. Not just the pagans, but Israel herself was doing this. When all of this stuff comes upon you and you get the boot, then I will show you mercy. Then I will show you grace. Then I will bring you back. Then God is saying, I will keep my promise 
to Abraham. Because that's the only way you get the land. Is if I keep my promise. And we start to see here part of what the function of the law is. Part of the function of the law is to show us that we need a Savior. To show us that we need God to be merciful to us. To show us that we need grace. Because we don't think we do. We think we've pretty well got things figured out. Now, everybody around us knows better. But we think we've got people fooled. We think we've done a pretty dang good job. And we think we're pretty righteous. We think we're basically good and and can't imagine why in the world God might be disappointed with us. Now, some of you have been humbled by life and are a little more honest. But even with you, at some point, you're like, I mean, doing pretty good at this point. I understand why Mina used to be mad at me, but now, I mean, kind of got some things figured out. Grew up a little bit, did what Elliot said, got more mature. But we all know better, don't we? And and this is Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3, 15 to 29. It was never meant for us to get to God by keeping the law. It's not why the law was given. Paul Paul tells us why it was given. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, there wasn't a law given that could give life. That's why righteousness is not by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's what it did. That's what the law did. It shut us all up in the reality of our sin. That's what it did. It's it's this mirror that we stand in front of that's perfectly clear and gives us a perfect reflection of our moral selves. And just as disappointing as it can be to stand in front of a physical mirror, it's more disappointing to stand in front of the mirror of God's law. Because if we honestly assess it, it reveals every flaw, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. It imprisons us under sin. We think, oh, I'm pretty good. And then we read God's law, and we're like, okay, well, never mind. I had misdefined what good is. That's the problem. That's the problem. So, so he goes on. It, it imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's why the law was given. To imprison us in sin. To shut us up in sin. So that we would be driven to Jesus. So that the promise would come not by our works. Not by our law keeping. But by faith. That was the whole reason the law was given. He goes on. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. How? Well, before Christ came, when you sinned, what did you do? You went to the altar with your animals and you killed the animals and and that showed your need for blood to be shed, your need for for, for sacrifice in order to be made righteous before God. It showed that God had to be appeased, that his anger had to be satisfied. 
but it showed that in order to teach you to trust him and his steadfast love. And you had to do this over and over and over because you sinned over and over and over. But Paul says, once faith came, that that wasn't necessary anymore. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So that was the law's job, to show you that you needed mercy, to show you what righteousness was, that you hadn't attained it, and that we need mercy. That was the law's job, and it was good at it. Weekly, monthly, yearly, you had to go make these sacrifices. Blood had to be shed. The high priest had to go in on the Day of Atonement. Blood had to be spread all around. The scapegoat had to be released. I mean, it was just this horribly bloody scene. It was monstrous in some ways. If you ever try to figure out how many sheep a year would have been killed in Israel, you realize they must have been phenomenal shepherds just to supply the need that the law created or that their sin created. But Christ has come. And now that faith has come, we're not under that guardian anymore. Now when we sin, we don't run to the altar with our animals to be killed to to, to show that, that we're trusting you in your mercy. Now when we sin, we run to Jesus who has fully satisfied God's justice for you, teaching us to trust him and his steadfast love. That's why we don't need the law anymore to, to function in this way. It's not even you need the law until you personally come to Jesus. No, no. Now you go straight to Jesus. We don't need the guardian. Yes, the law still shows us we're sinners. I get that. But if in seeing that you're a sinner, you run to make some sacrifice somewhere, you're going to be in like all kinds of trouble, civil and spiritual trouble. It's going to bite you both ways. You don't run to that anymore. You don't run to the altar with your animal in tow. You run to the cross of Jesus Christ whose blood was shed to wash you clean from all of your sin. Faith has come. Christ has come. You're not under a guardian anymore. Christ came. And so we run to him to see his blood has already been shed. God's wrath has already been satisfied. My debt, your debt, with all of its legal demands, has already been nailed to the cross. And you look to him in faith and you stand justified forever. Forever. And you're not taken away He's not taken away just because you sin again. Rather, he continues to intercede for you. He continues as the propitiation for your sin. This is what the Mosaic Covenant was meant to do. It was meant to keep the people of God under a guardian until Christ came in fulfillment of all the law. And remember, he didn't get rid of the law. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 tells, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. 
Nothing's passing away. That's not why I came. I didn't come to say, oh, you know what? Never mind. None of that matters anymore. No, it all matters. We just can't do anything about it mattering. We can't keep it. Still matters. Still shows us guilty. Still shows us to be a sinner. Still shows us to be justly condemned by the holy God of all creation. But Christ fulfilled it. As the substitute for you and I. He satisfied, he fulfilled every law, every command. He perfectly obeyed, never failing once time. Made like us, but without sin. And then, as the true Lamb of God, the one to whom all those hundreds of thousands of lambs and all of those oxen and all of those rams and all of those doves and all of those everything else that was sacrificed day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, all of those things pointed to Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, who offered himself up as a sacrifice for you and I. Satisfying God's wrath against us for breaking the law. Fully paying your debt. Every sin, public and private, in deed, in word, in thought, washed away. You're forgiven because of Jesus and his fulfillment of the law on your behalf. The law still shows us our sin. It still drives us to Jesus. And we're still satisfied. We're still forgiven. And God's wrath is still satisfied. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is all about. It was never intended to be a way to be justified before God. It was always all about showing us our sin and showing us the grace and mercy of God. And so if we read the law and we come away with something other than the grace and mercy of God, if we read the law and we're driven to something other than trusting Him, something other than faith, believing His word, then we've misread the law. We've misread it entirely, in fact. Paul tells us as much in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We, we often have, have memorized in, in Bible classes and, and other things uh, the, the, the words about the, 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 how Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable and all of that, but, but we've missed the good stuff. I'm not saying that the doctrine of you know, inspiration isn't the good stuff. I get it. But, but if we would just have backed up a couple verses and worked just a wee bit harder to memorize a, a couple more verses, we would have been richly fed. But as for you, continuing what you have learned, Paul writes, and have firmly believed, knowing how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, now follow the logic here. Paul's writing the New Testament, so he's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Now listen to how he describes them. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the sacred writings, the law, 
able to make you wise for salvation, not by keeping the works, not by teaching you how to live a holy life, through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. See, we, we memorized that last part. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent and equipped for everything. And we're like, okay, here's what we should get from God's Word. We should be, we should be taught we should be reproved, we should be corrected, we should be trained. And then we go to God's Word and we come up with a whole list of a bunch of junk that we think is going to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us if we would just do it all. The teaching, the reproof, the correction, the training should be leading us to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. When we do something else with the law, we're misrepresenting God's word. It was given to drive us to Jesus. It's very good at what it was given for. Very good. Nothing's better. Nothing is better at showing you, you, showing you your need for a savior than God's law. The law of God, not by any fault of its own, but by design and by your sinful self and my sinful self is lousy for what it wasn't given for. When we try to make the law the way for us to satisfy God's wrath, we're misusing the law. And it doesn't work. It's like when I'm trying to fix something and I have a screwdriver in my hand and I realize that something needs to be hit and instead of going and getting a hammer, I just hit it with the screwdriver and tear my hand up and put a dent in the wall. It doesn't work for what it's not designed for. We shouldn't try to use the law to do that for which it's not designed for. We should let the law drive us to Jesus. We should let the law do the thing it was given for. Yes, it shows us righteousness. Yes, I get it. But it does so in order to show us that we need a Savior. And in order, Paul says, to reveal that Savior to us. The law the sacred writings, the Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is all about. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What's he doing there? He's showing us the distinction between Abraham and Moses. Abraham, only God passed through the pieces. There wasn't an intermediary. Moses, Moses was the intermediary. He went up and talked to God and said, this is what the people said. He went back to the people and said, this is what God said. And he was the go-between. With the gospel, there's not an intermediary between us and God because God himself is the intermediary. He is the mediator. He is the one that brings us to himself. Moses was designed to picture all of that for us and to drive us to it. 
to take us by the hand and walk us to Jesus. Might the law do that for each of us, that we might be saved. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope that it gives us. Even the law as it drives us to Christ and makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Father, would you teach us to rightly understand your word, to believe your word, to trust you who sent your son to die that we might have life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.